And those of you who remain, get your Bibles out and get ready. We are going to be faithful today to our middle name, Summit Bible Church. And there is going to be a lot of Bible reading today, so I hope you're prepared and you've warmed up your fingers by flipping you know, to and fro throughout the Scriptures, because we're going to be doing that anyways. I'd like you first to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you're new with us, welcome. Thanks for coming today. And uh, I just believe so much that the Word of God is inspired by Him because it says that it is and that it is profitable in a variety of ways in our lives. And so even just reading the Scriptures will work in us. We're going to do a lot of reading today. First, we'll go to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy is towards the front of your Bible. It's in the Pentateuch. And you could summarize this book by calling it the Renewed Covenant or the Renewed Law. Let me catch you up with some historical context. In the book of Exodus, God redeems His people out of slavery in Egypt and the people of Israel. He calls them His treasured possession, a a royal priesthood, a, a nation, a holy nation that He separated unto Himself. And he leads the people of Israel to the wilderness in in Sinai. The people of Israel wait at the bottom of the mountain and Moses ascends the mountain to receive the law from God, the commandments. And then he comes back down and he gives the law, this old covenant, to the people of Israel. In summary, if you obey this law, you will be blessed. If you disobey this law, there will follow curse. Now, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, the people of Israel have already messed up. They've already failed. They've disobeyed God's commands. They've worshipped idols. They've whined and complained in the wilderness. They did not trust God to clean out the scary giants that they saw in the land of Canaan. So they wandered for 40 years. A whole generation has died off. And so Moses now renews the covenants. He brings up that old covenant and those laws that he spoke about at Sinai. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesies, interestingly, about a future prophet. And this, is, this prophet, Moses says, you have to listen to this one. He will speak the commandments of God. And you must obey them. And then in Deuteronomy 29, Moses prophesies that Israel is going to continue to mess up. They will continue to fail. They will disobey God and His commandments, and as a result, they will be scattered among the nations. Moses prophesies this will happen, and it did. But we get to Deuteronomy 30, and Moses alludes to a different kind of law. A new covenant that will be written on the people of Israel's hearts. Look at Deuteronomy 30, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. He says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, 
and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there even the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you back into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God, listen to this, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and the enemies who, pursue, her, per, who persecuted you. <laughs> Look at verse 8. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments that I command you today. See, Moses points forward to a time when Israel would be restored to the land and that they will be circumcised in the heart. That is cleansed from the heart. And they won't just obey God out of duty or obligation. They will obey God from the heart. Moses points forward and alludes to this new covenant and this new covenant law. Now, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We pick up again in the book of Matthew. And what you might know as the Sermon on the Mount The correlations between what I just told you about and what's about to happen in Matthew are unmistakable. Moses ascended the mountain. And in verse 1, you see now Jesus ascend the mountain. Moses spoke as a prophet with God's authority. Jesus now speaks the ultimate prophet with ultimate authority. Moses was the chosen leader, the mediator of the old covenant law. Now Jesus, God himself, is the mediator of the new covenant law. And he's got a sermon to preach. A word to bring to God's new covenant people. The disciples. The disciples, you see, sit at his feet in verse one here. And remember, if you go a few sermons back, you remember that we're all disciples if you are in Jesus Christ, if you're following him. So this sermon is for us. Charles Spurgeon notes that the natural order of royal action is this the king's anointed, then he comes among the people to show his power, and afterwards he acts as a legislator to set forth his statutes. Well, what have we seen Jesus do up to this point in Matthew? We've validated his royal lineage. He was anointed in his baptism. He was tested in the wilderness. And then he came and, and displayed his power through preaching the gospel and performing miracles. 
And now, seeing the crowds, he goes up the mountain to set forth his statutes. To give you the king's law. The good king's law. So that is what I've titled the Sermon on the Mount. This is the king's law. This is uh, his righteous order for his new covenant people. And that will be explained as we go through it. Today is just a summary of it. What's most critical to understand though, the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant here, is what Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 30. Here's the subtle difference, but it's an important difference. In the Old Covenant, you obey in order to be blessed. What does Jesus pronounce as the first word of his New Covenant law? Blessed. You are blessed, therefore you obey. Remember, the new covenant law is written on our hearts, and it is obeyed, it is the righteous order from the heart. And so that's the difference. Because you've been saved, because you've been made a son or a daughter of the Most High, you obey God out of a heart that actually desires to obey Him. And to fulfill his commandments. That's what it means to be a part of the new covenant. Participators in the new covenant. So why is this important for us? Why do we need to listen to Jesus' sermon? The king's law. Because the Bible says if you're in Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Christ. You've been born again. And you are new covenant people. 2 Corinthians 6.3 And you're under the law of Christ. You're no longer under the old law, but you're under the law of Christ. Jesus ratified the new covenant in His blood. Luke 22.20 So again, if you believe in Him and you've been born again and your heart has been cleansed and made new, you're covered in His righteousness, you have this law written on your heart. And by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you have the ability to live this out. And to walk in these commandments. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. And it's for you. As Jesus himself said, you would be wise to hear these words of mine and do them. So that's what we're going to seek to do as we go through this series. Is to hear the words of Jesus and apply them to our life as new covenant people. So... I'd like today to read the whole sermon from start to finish. I don't believe Jesus preached this in parts. Some commentators would say that. He ascended the mountain, preached, and at the end of it you see he descends the mountain. I believe that this was a complete sermon. And so Jesus didn't preach this in parts, so I think it's important for us to hear it as a whole. And to understand the emphasis and the thrust of it. And if we read it as a whole, we'll notice some patterns, some repeated phrases. And and we'll really try to understand the major themes that are within this sermon. And it'll help us to understand how to apply them in our lives. So I'm going to read the whole sermon. Have your Bible ready in front of you. Matthew 5-7. through 
follow along, really listen to Jesus' words as if he were saying them to you from his own mouth, because that's what we believe the Bible is, the breathed out word of God. So he is, as we read the scriptures, he is speaking to us. And then I'm going to make just five simple points after I read the sermon. Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, and for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underneath people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said of those, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward." But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give the dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more 
will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a deceased tree bear good fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. This is the Word of God. My first question for you, what part popped? What stuck out to you in the sermon? What hit your heart, convicted you, exposed sin, or motivated you, encouraged you, brought comfort to you? For me, two visceral responses that went hand in hand. I read through this whole sermon multiple times this week as I'm trying to just digest the words and apply them to my own heart and life. Two visceral responses. Number one, convictional inadequacy. Convictional inadequacy. Did you feel the conviction? Have you been exposed? This sermon from Jesus is like a floodlight into the darkness of your heart. And it exposes every crevice, every harbored sin, the attitudes, the thoughts, and the actions. Jesus addresses every sinful attitude and behavior underneath the sun. He's like the doctor who gets your x-ray 
You say, Doc, I feel good. I look good. He puts the x-ray against the, ba- the black light, the backlight, and says, yeah, you might look good on the outside. You might feel good on the outside, but look at the problem that's going on on the inside. That's what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount does. Are you angry today? Are you lustful? Are you prideful? Are you double-tongued? Are you judgmental? Are you revengeful? Are you greedy? Are you covetous? Are you anxious? Are you worrying? Are you stressed? This sermon has a word for you. We're all inadequate. We fail this simple exam in our own strengths. And, And the Pharisees and the Jews must have felt the same. They must have. Those listening, they could say, well, I could avoid murder. I can avoid adultery. I can avoid my enemies. I can play the religious game, go through all the hoops, and do all the religious exercises. But get rid of anger? Get rid of lust? Love my enemies? Perform my religious duties in secret where nobody sees except for God? I fail. Been exposed. If this is righteousness, I fall short. I think everybody in this room would admit that. So a convictional inadequacy. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know why? Because it leads you to understand that you need a Savior. You need an external righteousness imputed to you. And that's where Jesus comes in. I need a righteousness not of my own. Because if it were up to me and myself... I am inadequate. I fall short. Now the second visceral response that I had, I wonder if any of you had this, is an irresistible attraction. An irresistible attraction to the kind of life that this provides. There was a a boy in an orphanage He had a framed picture next to his bed. It was an attractive couple, smiling and holding each other. Someone asked him, were those your parents? He said, no. It's just the picture that came in the picture frame. But I like to look at it because the couple is beautiful. And I like to imagine that that's what my parents were like. Christian, Jesus shows you here a picture of attractive people living an attractive life. I mean, who doesn't want to be pure from the heart? Who doesn't want to be a peacemaker? Who doesn't want the kingdom of heaven? Who doesn't want to be salt? Who doesn't want to be light? What Christian doesn't want to call... God, Father, and live like a true son or a daughter. To know that you've been adopted by, into His family. To know that He cares for you. That He provides for you. Just like the lilies of the field. Just like the birds in the air. To live this way. Anxiety-free. Anger-free. Lust-free. To be this kind of person. Living in this kind of world. Is attractive to the Christian. It pulls at our heart because the law has been written on our heart. 
So Christian, this ought to be attractive to you. Even though you know you fail in various areas, you ought to have that desire to shore them up and to grow because this is who you want to be. A kingdom citizen. To live righteously under a good king and a just king like the Lord Jesus Christ. The king in this sermon gives us a clear description of his citizens. A description of true righteousness that is expected from his people. It's not just a description of them. It's the prescription for them. This is how we live. This is how we ought to live. So there's application for us all over and throughout this sermon. It's about righteousness. And righteousness, in summary, if you want to write this down, is simply put, it is adherence to the law. Adherence to the law. So here is our king's good law. This is the law for new covenant people. This is their expectations. This is how we should look. This is how we live. And it's what it means to walk in true righteousness. And I have five descriptions of righteousness just for the remainder of our sermon that the king expects from his people. This kind of righteousness is different than the one that you think you can derive in yourself. Point number one, it's alien righteousness. Alien righteousness. By the word alien, I mean foreign. It is not derived within you. It needs to come from somewhere else. In theological terms, it needs to be imputed to you. Because you don't have this. Like I already said, we are all inadequate. We all fall short of the righteousness that Jesus expects. So he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. He says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees, if I could just put it bluntly, We're better than you. As far as adherence to the law, doing good things, performing religious rituals, they were better than you in that sense. But the righteousness that's required of kingdom citizens is one that goes even above and beyond that. Jesus says you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says in Chapter 6, verse 33, he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. There's a clue. It's a righteousness that doesn't come from us. It comes from Him. This kind of living must be a result of righteousness imputed to us. And there is only one man. Listen, this is important. There is only one man that we know who perfectly adhered to the law. In fact, he fulfilled it. And who is that? Jesus Christ. See, this is a Christocentric sermon. Jesus preaches this sermon pointing back to the need for himself. Here's the righteousness that's required of you, and it should be blatantly obvious that we don't measure up. We don't have this righteousness within us. So it just keeps pointing back to the good king, the just and the justifier, Jesus Christ. We know from the Scriptures that the righteousness that is required of us is only found by faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5. He made Him 
who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. A great exchange happens on the cross. Jesus takes upon Himself the punishment and the penalty for our sins. And in an act of just generosity and grace and mercy, He gives us His perfect life, His righteousness. And we're covered in it. Justified. He is the just judge who demands righteousness and He's the justifier who fulfills it. You've got to understand, to live this kind of way, to live this life, you need to be righteous first. And you need a righteousness not in yourself. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is for Christians. This is for disciples. This is for those who have been made righteous by Jesus. So it's an alien righteousness. It doesn't come from ourselves. We, we should not read this sermon and go, I need to do better. Well, if you have the righteousness of Christ, you could then begin to live that out in your life. But if you don't have it, you're not going to do better. You're going to do worse. It's an alien righteousness. Point number two. Jesus describes a from-the-heart righteousness. A from-the-heart righteousness. Even the first section, they're not the be-good attitudes. They're the be-attitudes. God blesses the righteous posture of a man's heart. Poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who are meek and hunger and merciful. Pure peacemakers. See, Jesus goes further than the Mosaic Law ever did by addressing not only the actions of the individual, but their attitudes, the heart. Jesus says, you've heard murder sin, I tell you anger sin. You've heard adultery sin, I tell you lust is sin. You've heard hate your enemies, I tell you to love them. And don't retaliate. In fact, have a generous spirit towards those who take advantage of you. These are attitudes, heart attitudes that Jesus addresses. Now this should not be news to us because even in the Old Testament, God told us He looks not in a man's outer appearance, He looks where? At the heart. So we could conclude, man, these expectations were probably implied in the Old Covenant law. Jesus now makes them explicit. You need to obey from the heart. The law in the New Covenant is written on our hearts. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we're actually able to live this out. To have right heart attitudes. But without the saving power of Jesus Christ, you're not able to live this out. You're not able to have the right heart attitudes. You might be able to do the right things. I can avoid murder. I can avoid adultery. But you're not going to be able to avoid the sins of the heart. Anger, lust. If I had a a 45-pound weight plate and I put it in the bed, just dropped it in the middle of the bed, and I took a a ball and I put the ball somewhere on the outside of that weight plate, where is the ball going to roll? It's going to roll right into that weight plate because the weight is suppressing the bed in that area and the ball is just going to roll always to that weight plate. That's what sin is in your life without Christ. It dominates you. You're enslaved to it. You can't help but not sin. You can't help but sin. You can't not not sin. You always sin. 
from the heart. It doesn't matter if you do good things, you, you know, give gifts to people and you do kind deeds. It's motivated from a selfishness and a self-indulging sinfulness that you can't avoid without Christ. But get this, if you've been saved, Jesus comes in and takes out that weight plate. Sin no longer dominates your life. It no longer has power over you. So you may still sin and stumble, but you can choose to not sin and have the right heart attitudes that lead to the right actions because you're made new in Christ. You're born again. Your heart has been transformed. And so Christian, you're able to say no to anger. You're able to say no to lust. You can apply this sermon in your life and walk in righteousness that God expects from the heart. Point number three. It's a God-pleasing righteousness. It's a God-pleasing righteousness. Jesus addresses the hypocrite, the fakers. Those who do a bunch of good things on the outside, but they do it in order to be recognized by others, to be seen. They don't pray, they don't give, and they don't fast for their Father or for God. They do it for others. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're truly his child, if you're a disciple, if you're a kingdom citizen, then you do these religious things like prayer, fasting, giving for one audience alone. For your father. Isn't that a sweet picture of relationship? Your father. Your father. How many times did you hear that in the Sermon on the Mount? Your father. Your father. Your father. Jesus keeps pointing you back to the nature of your relationship with God, which is not a distant and a cold relationship. It's not a relationship by contract. You're a son. You're a daughter of the Most High. And so what you do is to please Him. That's the true Christian. They have a heart that wants to please their father. I was just remembering the good old days of pony baseball. And I used to play pony baseball. I was 10, 11, 12. And pony baseball... I would get out there on the field, I'd, I'd hit the ball, I'd make the catch. And guess what I was looking for first in the stands? Who did I want to see? I wanted to see my dad. I played pony baseball to please my dad. Just the simplicity of knowing he was there and that he saw it. And that I was making him happy. And that I could talk, about, talk with him about the game after we played it. All that changed in high school. I was no longer playing baseball to please my dad. I looked to the stands to look for scouts. You know, Johnny's dad. I was really trying to impress. Or the coach. Or my teammates. I just remember missing those days, the simplicity of just playing baseball to please dad. This is a reminder for us Christians. We can get so caught up in our religious activities how we look in front of other people, how we look in front of our pastor, and we forget that we we play and we live to please our Father, to honor Him, and to make Him happy, to glorify Him, to know that He's smiling because we're walking in obedience. Listen, God doesn't care how big your study Bible is. He doesn't care how cute your Sunday dress is. He doesn't care how many big words you've used in your prayer at growth group. 
whether you said propitiation or redemption or reconciliation or all any of the shins, he wants to know that your heart is in it and that you're doing it to please him and him alone. Are you just performing or are you truly honoring your Father who sees in secret and will reward you in heaven? Be motivated by a greater reward. Number four, Jesus talks about a God-trusting righteousness. A God-trusting righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount contains, in my opinion, the best diagnosis and remedy for anxiety in all of the Scripture. I mean, you don't have to spend much time online looking at stats to know that People are anxious today. Anxiety might be a struggle for you. You're tempted to worry, to become stressed, to be anxious. You know, Jesus speaks to that struggle in your life. He helps you by giving just the best diagnosis for it and the remedy to your anxiety. And you know what it is just summed up? God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. How many people in your life have failed you up to this point? Too many, right? And it hurts to be failed by people. People fail you. But you know who never fails? God. Even when your life is going crazy, it seems like he's not paying attention because everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Jesus says, no, 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 no. He's still in control and he's still trustworthy. Trust Him. Trust Him. Even when it is so hard to. Jesus talks about a God-trusting righteousness. A righteousness that comes by faith. That is not trusting in yourself to save yourself or to do more better. It's trusting in Him and Him alone to save you. To give you the righteousness that you need and to take care of you, provide for you, clothe you. God is stable and He's trustworthy. So don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Trust Him. Finally, the fifth characteristic of righteousness that is just so plain here from the sermon is that it is a distinguishing righteousness. If you can't spell distinguishing, write different. (laughs) It's a different righteousness. Jesus compares and contrasts throughout this sermon with other people. Not like the hypocrites. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Not like even the Gentiles. The world. This is a different righteousness. A holy righteousness. A set-apart righteousness. You, Christian, ought to look different. You will be distinguished from the non-Christian. You're salt. And your salt that shouldn't lose its flavor. Your light. Your light that shouldn't be hidden but should shine into the darkness. Many walk the wide road to destruction, but not you, Christian. You're one of the few who walk the narrow road that leads to life. Good tree bears good fruit and it is distinguished from the bad tree that bears bad fruit. Jesus knows those who are His. 
You're not fooling him if you're a fraud. They will be separated on the last day. He will have the final word. Many will call him Lord. Claim to have done miracles in his name. Many will deceive pastors. Many will deceive fellow church members. Many will even deceive their spouses, their children, their brothers, their sisters, their fathers, their mothers. But you won't deceive the judge. Jesus Christ will distinguish the truly righteous from the unrighteous. His kingdom citizen, the kingdom of heaven, from those who are of the kingdom of this world. Those who are light, those who are darkness. God knows your heart. He knows exactly where you stand, whether you are truly one of his kingdom citizens, truly a disciple, truly a follower of Christ. And I hate using those modifying words like truly or a genuine. If you follow Christ, you follow Christ from the heart and out into your actions. No need to say a true Christian, a genuine Christian, a real Christian. No such thing. It's a redundancy. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. If you're not, you're not. And Jesus exposes that in this sermon. Kingdom citizens, God's people, Jesus' disciples are different. They're different. They think differently, they want differently, and they act differently. Are you different? Are you here different? Different from this world, different from religious hypocrisy. Five distinguishing characteristics of God's righteousness. Let me go through them one more time. You have an alien righteousness. It's a not of this world righteousness. It's foreign to us. It comes from someone else. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's from the heart righteousness. These are genuine actions produced by genuine attitudes, a desire to obey God rather than just duty or obligation. It's a God-pleasing righteousness. It's oriented toward an audience of one pleasing your Father. The righteousness Jesus describes is a God-trusting righteousness, a righteousness by faith, really. We could say it that way. Trusting in God's character. He's proven himself trustworthy. And then finally, it's a distinguishing righteousness. It's a righteousness that distinguishes itself from all kinds of fakes, frauds, especially the darkness in the world. Well, I could just tell you, I am giddier than a kid at Disneyland to get into this sermon. I think it will produce such great fruit in the lives of our people at Summit Bible Church. I want to encourage you just as a final word of application before I close. If you have the opportunity this week, I want to encourage you to read through the sermon, front to back. Allow God's Word to work on your heart, to expose sin in your life, to motivate you, encourage you to live this way if you're truly His. And I pray that it will be obvious for those of you who don't have this kind of righteousness, you don't have that transformed heart, maybe it's been revealed even today that you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You don't want this, and and it's been exposed that you failed this. Listen to me carefully. Trust in Jesus Christ today. The righteousness that is required of you comes by faith. Believe in Him. 
Turn from your sinful lifestyle. Repent, as Jesus said previously. Turn from that lifestyle and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. We'll give you the righteousness you need. We'll cleanse your heart from its sinfulness and the power of sin in your life and give you a new heart that wants to obey Him. The heart that has the law written on it. Trust in Christ today. He will transform your heart and your life. And you can begin to live out this sermon in your life. Let me pray. Father, it's good to call you Father. That in and of itself brings joy and comfort and assurance to my heart to be called your son. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus who became a man and lived a perfect and righteous life that I couldn't live, who went to the cross and died as a great sacrifice to take the penalty and punishment for my sin upon himself and then give me his righteous life. That he rose from the dead, conquering the power of sin and death in our lives and so that we could be raised to new life with him and he ascended to the right hand of the Father as king, Ruler, Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ reigns and He comes again. He will come again to reign here on earth. Lord, in the meantime, You've given us a very clear Word that we can live in and follow. And thank You for that. Thank You for clarity. Thank You for giving us a good law one that we would want to obey. And that just brings such blessing to our lives here and a future reward in heaven. God, I pray that you would even work in, on the hearts of those here who don't know you, who don't have relationship with you, who can't yet call you Father. I pray that they would trust in Jesus Christ to have that relationship. They would even do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.